Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast, brought to you in partnership with Missio Alliance and Kairos Partnerships. Here we are in season five, and if you've been following along with us, you know that together, Doug and I interview a guest on each episode. If you're new with us, that's that's the kind of the structure and how we do it. But on occasion, Doug and I have the opportunity to interview a leader or a pastor one-on-one just to mix things up a bit. And this is one of those episodes. On future episodes, there will be times where you, you will hear Doug interview leaders one-on-one as well. I'll introduce our guest in just a minute, but there will be no outro. There will be no opportunity for Doug and I to talk about it. It'll just be the interview itself, but it'll be engaging and you'll find great value in this conversation with a faith leader that we want to make sure that you learn from and learn about. Well, today's guest is Mason King. He's one of the pastors of the Village Church and the executive director of the Village Church Institute, which oversees adult theological training within a local church. These environments train disciples to know their sacred text firsthand and pursue formation into the way of Jesus. In the last decade of ministry, Mason has helped launch two church campuses and served as an elder and spiritual formation pastor at the Village Church in Fort Worth. He is currently at work on a PhD in church history from the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he's focusing on the works of Jonathan Edwards. He and his wife, Carly, have been married nearly a decade, and they have three children and live in his hometown of Fort Worth, Texas. Enjoy this conversation with my friend, Mason King. It's really great to have you on the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, Mason, tell us a little bit about your story. I know you're at the Village Church there in Texas, but tell us your your life and ministry story, maybe in a little bit of your calling to ministry. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I am a Texas boy. I was born and raised in Fort Worth, Texas, and uh, grew up. I always tell people I grew up in the Baptist Church, red, col- or red carpet, white columns and was just a product of a good Southern Baptist church and was really involved in the youth group, had several older pastors challenge me in high school to think about vocational ministry. And so I began to Mm. think about that, what that might look like. I went to Texas A&M for university and studied speech communication because I thought, well, you should probably learn how to talk to people. And so I went, got a comm major, and it was, I guess, my freshman year, I was in a Bible study with eight guys. And to this day, I think six of us are pastors. And is that right? Yeah, it was, it's awesome. Like it was, but we were in this Bible study with our new cloth overboard, black and white cover ESVs, which were brand new. We all bought them and we're going through Romans with this guy named John Piper and we get to Romans nine. And I looked around the room and thought, what Kool-Aid are these guys drinking? Like, I don't (laughs) get it. And just wrestled with the Lord's sovereignty and salvation really hard in these, like in these friendships and in the text. And Jay, I got to tell you, man, like, uh, I've been a Christian for a a long time. And it was a point in my life where I felt gratitude for my salvation for the first time. And it Mm. wasn't like, Hey, I did this. It was, I was in the water dead and the Lord saved me. So I just, I remember 19, 20 years old, weeping with gratitude. And I Mm. thought, I want to tell people about this. 
And so mm. I finished out my career at AM, interned at a church doing youth ministry, decided I was not supposed to be a youth minister. And then uh, I interviewed some guys as I was ending college. And I said, listen, these were six or seven guys all in their 60s and 70s, well established in their careers, kind of near retirement age, and said, hey, I'm 23. I want to go to grad school. I think I want to be a pastor. Uh, I want to know what your habits are that have helped you in life, who your heroes are, and then what would you would tell me right now at 23? And I just, like I said, I'll drive to you, I'll buy coffee, I'll buy you lunch. What can we do? And man, I had some of the best conversations. They still have shaped me to this day. And it was, hey, go travel as much as you can. Go work a job that's really hard. Because if you're going to pastor, you're going to pastor people uh. who don't like their jobs. And then when you go back to school, treat it like work and not like play. And so I took two years off. My father and I had a conversation. I found some jobs that allowed me to travel, kind of pay the bills and eke a living out. And then I came back and applied to school. And the Lord used a, a number of circumstances to kind of get me to where I was. But uh, I ended up going to DTS. And got, I didn't realize I picked the most expensive and longest master's degree I could find, but I did <laughs> and ended up in Dallas. And the great thing was that my father had just been uh, diagnosed with stage four cancer. And so I moved back in with my parents, was with them until my father went through uh, all of his treatment and then has been in recovery. He's been actually in remission for a decade now, but allowing to be home close to my parents. I didn't want to be on either seaboard and be far away. And I began to get plugged in with the village. I, I knew of Chandler, like he was our disciple now preacher in middle school. So I've heard Matt's teaching since I was 14. And, mm, yeah. uh, a friend, and a for some of, of our listeners, yeah, for some yeah. of our listeners who may not know, Matt Chandler is a pastor of the Village Church, which is in Texas. Yeah, and right. uh, I think most of us would know who Matt is. But if you don't know Matt, he's very well known. He's very well received around the country. And uh, yeah, his, through media and many different outlets. And how many campuses are at the Village now? So that's part of our story, but we are actually in the process of rolling these campuses off into autonomous churches. And so okay, by, July, okay. by July of next year, we will just have one and it will be the Village Church Flower Mount. At one point we had five okay. and we are kind of doing, uh, Matt jokes that we're becoming the fastest shrinking megachurch in the country because we are <laughs> just sending churches out. So uh, I started interning at the Village Church Dallas, which was a campus they were opening because we were driving from Dallas to Highland Village, which is this small suburb, 45 minutes north of Dallas. And, you know, thousands of people were driving up there on the weekend. And I was at school at Dallas, um, met my future wife in that period of a bunch of singles driving up to church and began to intern at this church. So I was a free intern and helped do things. And eventually they decided to start paying me for what I was doing. And I was very thankful. And, uh, I worked there through the end of my master's at Dallas. And then we opened up a campus in Fort Worth. And I, since you're not from Texas, I got to tell you that when people call it Dallas, Fort Worth, I'm from Fort Worth and they're just, they're two distinct places. And so <laughs> it, was, it was great to be able to go home because my family was there. My, I know the city. And I thought, this is where I want to pastor for the rest of my life. And mm. I was that we were in our first kid was born as we got to Fort Worth. All three of our children were born in Fort Worth. And I helped pastor a church there for five years that had just a really hard first five years. And we mm. went through two major leadership changes with the lead pastor changing. And uh, I was the interim guy for the last year and a half. And um, at the end of that, at the end of five years there, I was offered a job at Flower Mound at our main campus to help come work in the Village Church Institute, which at that point was run by JT English. And JT now pastors, he's the lead pastor at Storyline Fellowship in uh, Arvada, Colorado, outside of Denver. So uh, JT brought me on. 
And JT, Jen Wilkin, and myself for the last few years have been working in the Institute. We believe in the Institute that the Bible and theology are for everyone. And so we also believe that discipleship happens in the context of the local church and mm -hmm. that we want people to have a firsthand knowledge of their sacred text and how to handle the text. So if there's an if there's a expert amateur divide, we want to break that divide down by equipping mm -hmm. people to know how to handle their Bible. And so that's the work that we do. I was brought in to help run a program that is called a residency. Uh, so I, I built that together. That's kind of like a, uh, I would say like a, a pastoral finishing school, but for within the church. So we're not bringing people mm -hmm. in from outside the church. We're try trying to actually build up an Ephesians 4 culture, thickening the fabric of the people within our body. Uh, so uh, I've been here for two years. So I just celebrated 10 years of the church. And JT left, I think, in April or May to go to Denver, and I took over the institute. And so now I help over. I run this department. I work with an incredible team. And man, it's so great. We have just a small team, but there's like four or five of us all teach in different environments. And so it's like, we come together for a meeting and then we all disperse to go, but we all love what we get to do. And it's, it's been a real joy. Yeah. Well, you clearly are passionate about teaching. God's gifted you in that area. And you and I were talking before we recorded about your passion for character formation, which is so important. And I'm not going to mention names, but we continue to see name after name, pastor after pastor, who uh, they say all the right things. They have a huge following. And there's this gap of who they are, you know, sort of Jesus talking about Pharisees, whitewashed tombs. You know, why is that? When we talk about character formation, why do you sense that there is oftentimes a widening gap where pastoral ability and pastoral character are so far apart? Why is that so rampant today? Can I just let me restate it to so make sure I hear you? Why, yeah, sure. Um, why is pastoral ability like the, the the character of what a person is, and then uh, their opportunity or their competency? Why are those so far mm -hmm. apart? Yeah, uh, yeah. Then I think there's an assumption of discipleship on a lot of levels. There's an assumption that because mm -hmm. you get a degree, it means you can, you've become a certain type of person. And the fact is that you can be as credentialed as you want to be, and it has not changed who you are. And so, like, I have met many, many theologians who are brilliant, but who I would not want to hang out with and who are incredible scholars, but who I would not want to put in front of people to teach these truths in a pastoral setting. And uh, those are, I mean, I'm, I'm not too far afield from what you're asking, because I, I think there is a, uh, a real grab bag of ambition and desire that has found its way into the church where people want to work out their ambition and desire in the kingdom of God. And it just goes mm -hmm. sideways. So a big book that talks mm -hmm. about this that uh, I really enjoy is Kyle Strobel and Jamin Goggin's book, The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. And yeah. he, he, I mean, they, they go through a lot of failures with people and a lot of things that people value that are uh, just earthly ways of power. And it draws a clear line of so many of us have bought into earthly ways of power and ambition and thought that we've basically just baptized it as ministry and made that okay. So I've been, you know, I've had front row seat to a few really uh, saddening moral failures and seen a couple things where it's, it's hard because these are your friends. These are people that you, you only know of someone, what they tell you. And mm -hmm. when you see someone fall, you realize like, man, but for the grace of God, that's me. But also mm -hmm. like, I need to work really hard on the kind of person I am and be a wholehearted person. We've mm. thought, um, we've thought if you learn theology, it'll change you. 
And it, it doesn't change the wounds that you're telling your, to still telling yourself as a kid. Like I've been to a ton of counseling. I struggle with anxiety. I've had to work through, work through my anxiety over the years. But the importance of being willing to look at your life, to be counseled from the scriptures, and to invite people into that, that will save you from a heap of trouble. Like I, I, mm. I just, in a very sober way, and I'll, I'll be quiet, um, I know that if, if I act selfishly, and I've watched brothers act selfishly, and I fall. It's not just me or my family or my wife or my kids that bear the burden because I've hugged the people and held the people who have been hurt by fallen leaders and who have questioned mm-hmm. their faith with the truth that's been taught. And I just don't think that we've talked about that fallout enough. Uh, we've just kind of lambasted the people who fall and go, well, you see, it really is hypocritical and we can't trust anybody. There's just such mm-hmm. a human element to it. So I, I think that answers your question. Is that yeah, absolutely. Okay. Sure. So as you as you explore character formation with people within the church at the village, um, you know, we also need we talk about formation, but there's also deformation that's happening. So there's yeah. we've got to name those things that are deforming us, not just in the church, but in our culture. So what are you seeing that is deforming us spiritually, even in the onslaught of this sort of rolling, unrelenting series of crises in 2020. How are we being deformed these days? What do we need to name? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that is deforming us is something that we've given ourselves over to very uncritically, and it's the glowing rectangle we keep in our pocket. Mm-hmm. And that I, I tell people in our environments, we talk about different worldviews and false narratives. Like we just started talking about false narratives. And so we walk through the stories of our age of uh, postmodernity or hedonism, progressivism, um, perfectionism, these stories. But then we walk through uh, post-Christendom. And this is what Mark Sayers calls is a, is a society that wants the benefits of the, of the kingdom without the king. So we want the yeah. history and the legacy of Christianity, but we don't want Christ. And, you know, I'm in, I'm in the buckle of the Bible belt. And so the, uh, the effects that we feel on the seaboards, on the coasts, of post-Christendom are not as hard, like are not as rampantly affected here and felt here. But I tell people, every time you open your phone, you're right there because that culture is the same narrative across the internet. And so I think the way that we use technology could not be a more important skill and learned habit for a Christian in these mm. days. Like I, mm. I spend a lot of time thinking and reading about this from um, um, the aspect of like, hey, you are like the medium is the message. And if, like, I looked the other day on Instagram, it changed since I noticed it, but like one day the bottom button changed from the likes to a shopping button. And it was, oh, it's one step easier for me to be able to shop from this thing that I find in my hand at a stoplight when I don't know what's going on. And there's such a repetitive nature. I spend time talking with with fellow Christians about the attention economy and how it really should be offensive that billions of billions of dollars are spent to hack your brain's biology yeah, and keep, keep yeah. that in your hand. So I think that's a big deal. I think the way we use technology and then the false stories of our world. So you think about the stories in the news, you think about uh, just wars, rumors of wars, myths, conspiracy theories, things that would distract you from the gospel and distract you from God's plan for your life, which is to become renewed in the image of your maker. And we get so uh, head down And in a year like this year, uh, where we have lost control over so many things, we have Mm -hmm. lost really a sense of identity. 
because we can't go do the things that we've based our identities off of. And we don't know when it's going to end. Like you were saying earlier about using the word unrelenting. We're just not sure when that's going to happen. Uh, we need to be rehearsing the Christian story that we have a future and we have a bright hope and we have marching orders. Like we, this is not the first time we faced a pandemic. It's not the first time that we've had yeah. division, like division or upheaval. Um, so I think those are some of the things that are deforming us and mm-hmm. taking us away from looking more and more like Jesus. Yeah. Well, and obviously this podcast is majority for pastors. We know a lot of our listeners aren't just pastors, but majority of them are. What would you want to say to pastors that are saying, okay, I, I'm with you, Mason. I understand that I, not only am I, but my people are being deformed by technology in some unhelpful ways. What does character formation and growth in discipleship in the way of Jesus look like? How do we disciple people with their technology use? Yeah. What does yeah. that look like? Let's drill down on a more granular level. Sure. So I, I think one thing is we have to help people understand the itch to go to technology is often looking to technology as savior. So savior mm. from boredom, savior from discontent, savior from silence, savior from self. Like if I can trust technology to bring me something, make life more easy, make it comfortable or distract me from the tyranny of my own life, like then, then it does it. And you get a dopamine hit. Like it's a proven thing. And you feel good. Your body gets a reward system for it. So it's a reinforced thing neurobiology uh, wise that uh, you have to make someone aware of and say, it's an unfair game. Hmm. Like when you open your phone and you check a trio of apps, this is, uh, I think Sherry Turkle talks about this. You take, you check a trio of apps. You're just running someone's maze. That's all you're doing. And they've set that up for you in a way to mm. help you be on their product. So that's why I said it should be offensive because Christians need to know, like, I'm not playing fair, like it's not a fair game. But mm-hmm. if I can if I can dethrone technology of, as a savior in my life from boredom or discontent and actually create spaces of silence and mm. then use technology as a tool for my formation, then that's mm. a big difference. Yeah. Like I, man, yeah. I, go ahead. Do you, okay, so I've wrestled. No, 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 with, I'm, yeah. I've wrestled with how to use Instagram. I've kind of like, I have marginal presence on Twitter and I, you know, I have a presence on Facebook because a lot of our people are there, but I'm Mm -hmm. trying to think through how do I use this in a way that doesn't deform me, but also how can I not mindlessly and uncritically adopt these things because they make something easier or fun. Um, The hook is always, Hey, share something fun with your friends. But the cost of those things is 15 minutes later, you're there and you don't realize that that's done something to you. So mm. leveraging technology in the right way, like this year in COVID, we've moved most of our environments online. And I mean, as a, as a person who is not a Luddite and who has technology, uh, who embraces technology, I just want people to be wary of it. And so I spend time mm. talking with them about it and trying to provoke for them to, just a way to look and go, how are you using it? Are you aware of what it's doing? And then the first step is be thoughtful about it. And then walk away from it completely at certain points during your day and your week, because it should not be omnipresent. Mm -hmm. That's a good word. Yeah. And the idea that it's a tool and not a savior, it it is fascinating to me how, you know, those dopamine hits are just so real. Even just, you know, I've got a friend, Jay Kim, who's out in Northern California, a pastor out in Santa Cruz. And, you know, even just hearing him wrestle, ironically, on social media saying, I'm thinking about deleting all my social media channels right now. Should I do it? Should I not? And he's inviting wisdom from people. And, And so there's the 
just jump in unthinkingly full bore. And then there are people saying, well, I, I think I may just eliminate it entirely. One of the ways that we try to describe technology to our kids is like fire. Fire in the fireplace is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Fire rolling out of the fireplace and onto our floor and burning our rug or our house. That's obviously uh, not not good at all. And so what we're trying to do is to teach wisdom. And yeah. I like how you said just naming that it's not a savior. That's really important that we need, you know, we always say naming things has a way of taming things and naming things has a way of changing things. And it sounds like just naming the times and the places where technology is attempting to be our Lord and Savior, where technology is wanting us to invite it in, into our hearts uh, to make it Lord and Savior is the problem and yeah. what we should avoid. So, yeah, that's that's great. I, Maybe maybe it's involved with technology or maybe it's something different. But as we talk about deformation, the ways in which we're deformed, mm-hmm. how is deforming happening in, in 2020 with all that's gone on in non-technological ways? Are there other ways we're being deformed? How are we being deformed in 2020? So I would probably enlarge the question of, or maybe of how are we becoming less and less like who we're supposed to be? based on the, the ambient anxiety or what's happening in our nation. Mm. Uh, I think we are growing less and less concerned with being people of virtue. So I think uh, huh. we, are, we are very quick to prize being productive, active people who have a quick response, who are able to know what to say next immediately. And almost like we trust that our rationalism is perfect. So I know the motives of your heart. I know where you're coming from. And I am mm. fit alone to speak to the answer of your problem. And Alan Jacobs, who's a, a Baylor prof, he wrote a little book called How to Think that I have some more environments mm-hmm. read. And it really does a good job of isolating like, hey, we, we don't know how to argue in a way that preserves the dignity of the other person. We just assume the mm. absolute worst of the other person and go after them because they are repugnant to us. Like we moralize mm. their views and cannot separate it. And I think that is, in, that is part and parcel of a lot of social media. And so if you're, mm. if you're stuck in your home, like my wife, Carly and I at home in suburbia, three kids in the house, and there's just ambient anxiety around. Mm-hmm. And so it, like, I would say that anxiety can deform you because you are looking for control and not like, if you don't put it in its place, like in the fireplace. Okay. So I find myself often praying Psalm 131 of, Hey Lord, my heart's not lifted on the things that I can't control. I'm going to quiet my heart. I'm going to hope in you. and. Mm. We're going to move forward. So anxiety deforms. Uh, I would say the lack of virtue deforms, and then kind of an aimlessness, like it. Like we've talked about it feeling like Groundhog Day. So you mm-hmm. wake up, you hit the alarm, you walk outside, and you're like, "I'm just doing the same thing, different day." Only in Texas now, it's 110 degrees, and <laughs> like it's it's one of those things of what do I do when it feels like every day is the same, and we're stuck here. And mm. it's part of like, that is a deforming thing because you, you start to, your, your blinders start to come in and narrow in and you start to lose sight of hope. And so mm. as a Christian, if you're not keeping regular rhythms of Sabbath, of scripture reading, of conversation with friends, these things will rob you of hope and of really what Paul talks about in the pastoral epistles of becoming the kind of person who can respond to a year like 2020 with perseverance.
you've seen as you talk with other pastors, either on staff or around the country, either other other kingdom leaders, um, what do you sense there that are the common lies that pastors are tempted to believe in this season? I think uh, I heard one of your one of your guests talk about this a few weeks ago. The fact that metrics are reality, and mm. so hey, it's you know, our numbers are trending this way. So our live stream is this, or it's gone down or it's mm. up. And it's helpful to talk with other pastors across the country and go, Hey, if you're, are your live stream numbers down? Yeah. Everybody's are because everyone's <laughs> tired of sitting in their living room on Sunday morning and watching church. Mm. And so there is a, the metrics have changed and there is the, the lie of thinking that action or movement is productivity, like, and is fruitful. Uh productivity. So if I can be posting more, engaging with people, calling people, uh, going out and meeting people, if they're comfortable with that, like the more movement I can do, then I feel better. And Mm. I just don't know that that's true. Like, I think there is Mm. a, uh, there's a way to have a good ferment in your people and in your own heart Mm -hmm. in seasons like this. Mm -hmm. So that when you do get together, you've had time to think through things of how to care for people that normally you just wouldn't. Like I think mm. one of the graces of this year is that it is, it is forced a slowing down of American evangelicalism because we are so rapid fire on things that it allows us to think and take time and consider how to care for our people. Um, so I love that F word that you use, ferment. I I'm, find myself using that a lot, but I want to ask you, how are you using ferment? Maybe some people are saying, what do you mean by ferment? Like fermentation, hey, expound upon that a little bit more because I think that's a wonderful uh, image metaphor for yeah. what do you, when you say ferment in our people, what do you mean by so, that? Uh, I think about, here's an easy analogy is if you think about struggles for pastors in this season, even as they might come to the Bible, uh, a first one is that there is this, if you communicate things for a living, there is an itch always when you find something good that you want to communicate it. And mm. so people are like, Oh, that's good. I spent 30 seconds with Ephesians one. That's awesome. I need to share that with somebody. How can I quote this? How can I tweet it? What do I need to do? This is so great. And you find yourself sharing too soon. Mm, Like you have mm. no time to let this thing take root. There is no, there is no contemplation. There is no slow growth of really applying the Bible to your life. It is just, Oh, I got to I got to take this and move. And you can be a courier of what the text says. That's fine. But if you were trying to disciple people and help them think through of how it's applied to your life, it has to ferment in your own heart. Like that's where all these mm. great insights come from on the text. You're reading, if you're going to read Calvin, if you're going to read Luther, if you're going to read Augustine, like these people sat with the Bible and thought about it. And if we are trained by our culture to not be a thinking people, like we are our people who are trained to recite information, to skim, a deep dive for us is four minutes on Google or Twitter news. <laughs> and yeah. then we trust that. Like we have to become a thinking people who will sit with stuff for a while and have opinions mm. differentiated in those opinions and be okay sharing them. And I think that that's what I mean by being willing to hold on to something for a while and see what happens. Yeah, that's great. It reminds me, you know, when Mary, you know, like she pondered these things in her heart, that's right, like yeah. there was a fermenting that happened even with Nehemiah, right? Like he's, he's, riding around the walls at night, he's watching, but he's not telling anybody what's going on. The Lord's just doing something in him. Yeah. Something's growing in him. He's not quite sharing that. Yeah. And and I think there there's that struggle that we always want to give the hot take, right? We want to yeah. breaking news, you know, to be the wittiest, funniest, most sarcastic on social media or whatever it may be. And so, yeah, that, I think that's a really good counter practice to our culture right now that we don't often talk about is fermentation of thoughts, ideas, prayers, 
Earth longings before we go public with them. I mean, I think in a sort of a secular realm, I've heard a lot of leaders say, don't tell everybody what you're doing all the time. Like that always have projects you're working on where you're not telling anybody about it. Right. So there's sort of secular fermentation, but in a spiritual fermentation, right. Using that idea of, of planting seeds in the soil, right. They don't just don't grow up overnight, you know, unless they're weeds in my yard, that's a whole different story. But (laughs) for the most part, right. Things just take time. And so what does it mean to cultivate the soil, the pH of the soil and continue to water and see that process happen. So that's a beautiful metaphor that you're using there, Mason. I'm so, I'm so glad you threw that in there. Um, I'm curious too, if you're willing to get a little more personal to kind of drill down a little bit more. These are some of the lies that pastors are tempted to believe. What about in your own life? What are some lies that are often tempting either now or in certain seasons that have been really tempting for you to believe? Yeah. uh, So I have a, I give a talk for our interns when they come in each year and I kind of speak against some of the lies that I've believed. And I have this little phrase Mm -hmm. that I use for myself that I often on repeat tell myself and rehearse that I am ordinary, imperfect, and loved. And just as a pastor, I say, I am, and as a Christian, I am ordinary, imperfect, and love because the, the temptation for me and the lies that I believe are that I need to be differentiated by being extraordinary. That if I'm going to make it as a pastor, that success looks like I need to be an extraordinary person and be known by other people. And that is being, being successful. And that's a dirty lie. And then Mm. the reminder that I'm imperfect is that I'm often tempted to just want to be seen as perfect. And, and mm. treat myself like I should be. And honestly, like mm. I'm, I'm an ongoing process of change until I die. And I need to be mm. okay with that and know that and give myself the freedom to be human and to know that that confession of being human, which means that I am fallen and incomplete, is my confession that I need Jesus. And then mm. the last one of being loved, that I'm loved unconditionally. And I can often seek to be loved conditionally on my terms. And Mm. man, that is just a fool's errand. Like I, Mm. I need to be reminded that I am loved. Like Keller says, like far deeply you could ever imagine. And like, let my heart believe that and encourage my heart to believe that. So those are three Mm. things and lies that I've been tempted to believe over time that I need to be Mm. extraordinary, that I need to try and be perfect and that I need to be loved on certain terms. And so Mm. my, just a little reminder of I'm ordinary and perfect and loved helps protect me from those lies. Mm, that's a great practice. I love that. Almost like helpful gospel, gospel mantras that we can be telling ourselves yeah, regularly. Yeah, yeah. Just remind yeah. us of that, which is great. So, and speaking of temptations, I mean, the Village Church is very large, is well known, has had a great kingdom impact. Uh, some pockets of American Christianity outside of of Texas, of course, especially through your senior pastor uh, Matt Chandler, who we've talked about. What temptations do you think exist for? the church, and maybe even for you personally, when they're such a high profile, popular and influential pastor? Sure. So uh, I'll take them in the order you gave them. With the church, I, I mentioned Goggin and Trouble's book earlier, The Way of the Dragon, Way of the Lamb. One of the first chapters in there is really helpful, as I've thought about this over the years, is that uh, contemporary evangelical churches love gifted pastors. They love mm. extraordinary pastors because it makes them feel like they're part of something extraordinary. Oh, and fascinating that I want the gifted pastor. I want the A-list you know, conference speaker. So I can say I go to that person's church because that's a heightened sense of belonging instead of the heightened sense of belonging being, I am part of Christ's bride. Mm-hmm. And those are two very different things that exist within evangelical Christianity. And mm-hmm. I think that the celebrity culture has uh, helped that 
by and large, in a lot of ways. So it's not just indicative mm-hmm. to us. I think many large churches face this, and people don't realize the subtle difference of mm. I am, I'm elevating the gifting of my lead shepherd, who is actually an under shepherd, and I'm not I'm not estimating my lead shepherd correctly, mm. and being willing to sit with a brother who might just be a, not as great of a communicator, but the message is the same value. And mm. so I think that's a temptation for large churches with very mm-hmm. extraordinarily gifted pastors. It's mm. also a temptation mm. that you can consume content like you do anything else and expect that to be transformative. So, uh, you know, over I've been here for a decade in three different places. And I'll tell you at three different campuses, if people know that Matt's not preaching on the weekend, our attendance is down. And mm. it's one, awesome if you're the guy preaching that weekend. Because sometimes <laughs> over, over the years, you would just see people stand up and walk out. And just such an estimation of the person, like the lead guy. And Mm. um, so those are temptations to over, Mm. like to idealize the lead pastor, overestimate that and to underestimate really the the value of why you're there. Uh, Personal, Mm. personal temptations. Gosh, I work with some incredibly talented people, like people who are very successful in their careers, very well known, very influential. I mean, like this is, I'm in my office, I office next door to Jen Wilkin, who is an internationally known Bible teacher. And mm-hmm. uh, she's a dear friend of mine, a teammate, a colleague. But like when we go places, I, I'm like standing next to her, holding her stuff or taking selfies with people for her. And so I'm just, you're, it's just like, this is the reality of, I work with some incredibly talented people. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have found at times my heart having to navigate the lines of, man, I'm ordinary and perfect and loved. So are mm. my friends. And the Lord has seen fit to do this through their ministry. I know mm. them well. I know Matt well. I know Jen well. Like they are people. And mm-hmm. they are people who need to be treated as people and given freedom to be that. And so that's mm. some of the temptation of working at a church around people that others would be like, I saw this person in the airport. I got this person's photograph. Like they're a hashtag. And it's a thing of like, these are people. And so being here has allowed me to really humanize the work and the people <laughs> and um, allow, like Matt was a hero of mine for a long time. And I mean, just, I don't know that I've sat under any other person's teaching in person than Matt in my life, like more mm. over 20 years. So I don't know the effect he's had on me. It's, I can't calculate it. Uh, but treating him as a person, as a, as a colleague and peer at the church, like, um, mm. That's a grace of being able to just be differentiated and find your own voice. So it's kind of a thing of like uh, one more thing and I'll, and I'll stop. Um, pastoring here and learning to be a pastor here. Like I've only worked here in my career, 10 years, and learning to be a pastor at the church where Matt Chandler pastors is, uh, and I've watched a lot of friends do it, trying to find your voice can be hard hmm. because people either want you to be like the lead guy. Or you have a temptation to try and show, like, to show off too much that you're not, and mm, mm. having having the stability to ask the Lord to let you find your own voice, and then be confident that that's the voice that, that the church needs. Like, if Christ gives gifts to His bride, um, I look at it and go, "Man, I am. We are. Like, if you're talking about Enneagram, like Matt's an eight and I'm a six, and those are very different personalities. Yeah, yeah. And on our teaching team, we've got two eights a six and a three, uh, Enneagram numbers. So just, we, we come from a totally different angles. Uh, <laughs> but the, the, the bride needs a diverse diet. Like it needs to be taught by people who are different. And so just kind of going, all right, Lord, I'm gonna trust you in this and move forward. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I love the fact that you all have a teaching team. And from all I can tell, uh, I've never met Matt, but it seems like Matt is a very uh, confident, self-differentiated, Christ-honoring, emotionally intelligent leader, all with flaws like we all are, um, which is which is great. And you all have a, a team of communicators, which is great. Are there ways, if at all, where your church is addressing those people that get up when they find out Matt is not preaching? I mean, so there seems to, there's some sort of baked in consumerism that they have. I'm not saying that that's encouraged by the village. What are some ways that the village is trying to counter some of those deforming practices of consumerism, even as they come to church and who they preach with? Does that make sense? It does. I mean, some of the ways are implicit and explicit. So first Mm -hmm. I would say, um, you know, sometimes when you get around people you really respect, you get disappointed. Uh, the mm. closer I've gotten to the pastoral staff of the village over the last decade, mm-hmm. I have not been disappointed. Like I've only mm-hmm. been actually encouraged. And to watch the way that they've handled things, where for a season the Lord was bringing a thousand people a year to the church over a decade, um, I've just been greatly encouraged by the humility, by the desire for wholeheartedness and the leadership. In yeah. the action of encouraging the body of how to think through um how they handle celebrity, how they handle the providence the Lord has given this church. Um, you know, we don't tell people when Matt's preaching and when he's not. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't publish our, seri- our our preaching schedule. And when people make the choice of, hey, I'm actually, you know, Mason's preaching today, so I think I'm going to go out to the lake. Like, okay. <laughs> um, we try to teach around that of, mm-hmm. hey, the, the message is what's important. If you are so stuck on the gathering and the person, we need to have that conversation. And so you, like, if you are, are an elder or a pastor and you see those individuals, like we might get, we might, you know, try and have a conversation with them. Or if we recognize them, pick it up later and go, Hey, well, what's going on? Um, over the years, like I, I remember first few years I had to do turn away at the campuses because we would have a service and be full. And so I would stand outside and tell people, I'm sorry, welcome to church. I can't let you in. Mm. How unreal is that? Like, and yeah. it, would, it would have to have the conversation of like, some people would go, well, I'll, I'll wait. Can I stand in the back? It's like, no, we have a fire code. And then they would ask who was preaching. And it's like, well, it's this guy. And they go, okay, well, we'll just go home. And having conversations with them to try and engage those where you can, those are some of the implicit things that we've done. One, we like, so we don't, te- we don't tell when Matt's there or not. And because mm-hmm. we want people to come and hear the message. And yeah, then, yeah. Uh, we, we try to proactively engage people when we see that attitude. So as a mm-hmm. staff, we try and engage consumerism. We try and engage entitlement and work through those things with our people. And that is not a rampant characterization of our body by any means. We have a yeah, sure, people sure. here. Um, but there is sometimes that that's the nature that you get pockets where it's, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, no, that that's great. Well, just in this final question, something you did when you said you were graduating uh, from school, you you sought out some wise individuals and you said, what are your habits, your heroes, and what advice would you give me? I want you to answer those questions yourself. No, what are okay. some of the habits that you're doing that you're cultivating? Who are some of your heroes? And then lastly, what sort of advice would you want to give to pastors who may be listening? Many pastors are listening, feeling encouraged, dis- sorry, feeling discouraged and overwhelmed, beat up. Uh, misunderstood. Uh, A lot of the Barna data right now is showing they just, a lot of pastors are thinking about how, is this even worth it? Can I even stick in here? So just curious for you to take a couple minutes as we close here, what are your habits? What are your, who are your heroes and what advice would you have or what word of encouragement or challenge would you have for pastors who might be listening? No, that's kind of you to ask me my own question. Um, I'd say habits, 
my wife and I take a family Sabbath. Like our, our home takes a family Sabbath Friday afternoon at five, Saturday at five and phones are off. We watch a movie together. So we're, we're rolling mm-hmm. the Disney plus catalog right now. Cause I have a seven, five and three year old. And like we watched the great mouse detective last weekend, but we are laughing together as a family taking that in without distractions. We have pizza, we hang out. And then I make a big breakfast on Saturdays for my kids. And we just spend time together. Mm-hmm. And like my schedule is um, predictable and full. And so to say, we're going to reset in these 24 hours, my wife and I are going to have conversations, connect about the week and be with our children. That's really important. Like that is a non-negotiable for us. And mm-hmm. more often than not, we end Sabbath with another family here in Flower Mound having dinner who also have kids around our age. And we go and make a meal, like talk about our Sabbath. I think theirs is the next day because he's not in the ministry. And we just connect and try and have an adult conversation while our kids are playing. And we make sure nobody mm-hmm. breaks any bones. So that that's like a non-negotiable for us. Um, habits on a daily to weekly basis. I tell you, in COVID, COVID has been great to be able to actually have space to do predictability and structure and accountability in my own personal mm-hmm. habits. Uh, I have, I, I'm a morning person. And so like one of my, one of my professors in seminary said, a father's working day is 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. Anytime somebody, like anytime he wants for himself has to become before or after those hours. And I heard mm-hmm. that as, as like a, a, a single 25 year old and thought, yeah, right. And at 37, <laughs> Like I get up at five, I read, I pray, I, uh, I go work out and then I come back and get ready so that I'm ready when my kids get up. And mm-hmm. when my kids, like I find if I, if I just sleep in and reactive to my kids, I'm not in control of my temper. I am quick with them and I would much rather be awake and ready and proactive in parenting at that point. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that means I've got to go to bed at a certain time. I have to watch my diet my caffeine intake. I already mentioned I'm an anxious person. So for a lot for me, like I'm super sensitive to caffeine and have to pay attention to a lot of different factors so that I'm not wide awake at 11 PM wishing I could go to bed. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would say like self-monitoring. And then I, we use a book in our training program by Justin Early called the common rule. And for for us, like over the last couple of years, this has really influenced the nature and rhythm of our home. So habits are there. Um, I also try to read as much as I can. And mm-hmm. so where I can fit reading in, someone told me at a young, uh, you know, at a young age, always carry a book with you. So I'm just carrying a book around trying to just get a couple pages in at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, heroes. Gosh. Uh, I, I've got some historical ones, some ones I've met, some ones I've never met. So historically, uh, Theodore Roosevelt is one of my heroes. Just mm-hmm. what, what a guy I've got a, <laughs> I've got a quote right behind my computer monitor here that my father gave me. And it's a picture of Teddy and a quote. And the quote is the man in the arena. Do you know that quote? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I've had that. I've had this framed quote on every wall of every room or office since I was 20. And Mm. so just that demeanor of like, Hey, it doesn't matter what the critics say you get in the ring and you keep going. Like that has shaped a lot of my doggedness. Um, Mm. I, Eugene Peterson is a huge influence in my life. Uh, I never got to meet him. I think I believe you, you know, you knew him well, um, yeah. from a distance, Eugene's writings, I really resonated with his heart behind the vocational identity of a pastor. And I think some of your early questions around what is it to be at the village, Eugene gave me language for what I felt and that mm. it was okay to feel those things. 
and mm. about being a pastor. So I was super grateful for that. Um, Zach Eswine, do you know Zach? So I, read, I know of him. Yeah, so there's some read, of his books. Yeah, yeah. I read The Imperfect Pastor, and about halfway through The Imperfect Pastor, I I was like, I have to meet this guy. Mm. And how can I meet this guy? And so I emailed him. And he was coming to speak for something for our staff. I was like, can I buy you breakfast? Can I get time with you? And then I just started to email him every so often and uh, just ask advice, process stuff. There's been some big points for me over the last five, six years that Zach's helped me process through. And I've got to tell you, like his way of being is so uh, comforting and helpful to think through what it is to be a person who can bear the weight of pastoring and uh, bring it to the Lord on a continual basis and to just be wholehearted. Mm -hmm. So those are some people. Um, yeah, I could go on, but those are some, some primary people that I have met. And then I have read Dallas Willard has shaped my, my, my thinking on a lot of things that I'm grateful mm -hmm. for. Yeah, that's great. And how about just ending us with any sort of advice or encouragement yeah, yeah, or what word would you want to give to, to, to pastors who might be listening? Yeah. I, I mean, I think if, if what I tell myself is helpful to you to, to remind yourself that you're ordinary and perfect and loved, I, mm. I think it is a temptation also for people to expect you to be the opposites of those things. So people mm. will expect you to be extraordinary, like superhuman in a way to meet their needs. And they're falsely putting those expectations on you. They will expect you to be perfect and not give you grace when you are imperfect. And then their love will be conditional. And mm. if those people and their responses to you are the measure of your success, it will be a very rough go. Like it, it just will be a very rough go. And so if you think about how you're being formed, let's be intentional about how we're being formed as people who are becoming the kind of people who can do what Christ asks of us. And then let's remember that we need him. So that means that we cannot do it all on our own. And the Lord's inviting us into work with him each day. And that's what I would say, like mm -hmm. take it a day at a time, give yourself grace, give yourself compassion, not license and do what you can do. Mm, mm, that's great. Well, Mason, it's been such a joy. I mean, I think, you know, I think our relationship, ironically enough, started over social media. Right. And I know we've had a few times to, to overlap. I, I think of uh, when we were down together in San Diego uh, in November yeah. uh, at uh, ETS. But uh, so grateful for you and your ministry. So grateful for the way in which you are um, not just discipling people, but training people to be disciples through the Institute. And I'm so grateful uh, for that training program that you're a part of. So thanks for joining us here on the podcast. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. Thank you for having me.